0: We are in Matthew chapter 23, Matthew chapter 23, and we had read last week where Jesus was giving the woes to the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, really blasting them with a a number of different things that that he saw in their lives, And, and and I showed you how I could identify with actually many of those things. So let's pick it up in verse 29. Matthew chapter 23, verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape from the sentence of hell? And these are some really strong words. I mean, We saw this last week and we're seeing again more of this here. These are very strong words. You know, it says that... that uh, the Pharisees and the scribes would say, if we had lived back in those days, we never would have killed the prophets. And they nicely adorned the, the, uh, the tombs of those prophets. And Jesus says to them just the opposite. He says, no, you go ahead and just fill up the portion that's your portion. Those were your fathers. You would have done the same thing. Let me tell you something. I really think that I would have done the same thing too. I have killed people. In my heart, I've done that. In fact, I'll, I'll give you a specific example. Uh, when I had started out my career, uh, we were about to publish a series of papers, and just then these this series of papers started coming out from some other young assistant professor at another university. And it was very similar to what we had hoped to publish. And it was like, You know, all this excitement that I had 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 now been diffused because there was somebody else publishing a very similar sort of thing. And he was really good at doing this type of work. And there was a series of papers, one after another. And I remember thinking in my heart, I wish that he would just go away. You know, if he just died, it would be nice. You know, and this is what I was thinking in my heart. Isn't that terrible? I murdered this guy in my heart. Well, a few years later, I invited him to the university and uh, brought him over my house and we were eating and, and I shared the Lord with him and he began to open up with me and he subsequently came to know the Lord. So this guy that in my heart that I was murdering had actually come to know the Lord and It was really interesting to watch over the years and and how our relationships have, have been built. But I have murdered people in my heart because of bitter jealousy. I've done that. And I encourage you to not say, oh, I would never do that. Because I have found when I say I would never do that, I find myself doing that very thing. It's better not to say, I would never do that. It's better to say, God, help me and protect me from doing that. Your mercies, I pray. But then look what he says to them in verse 33. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? I mean, this what, what more could you say to a person? What more could the Son of God say As a condemning blow. You serpents. I mean, that identifies them with Satan. Remember Satan? He turns them into a serpent and on his belly he shall go. You serpents, you brood of vipers. I mean, all of you are snakes, he says. How will you escape the sentence of hell? I mean, Jesus never spoke like this to the tax collectors. He never spoke like this to the prostitutes, he pronounced upon them a sentence of hell. And he says, how will you ever escape from this sentence of hell? I mean, could he have been more vivid in what he was saying? I mean, how could he have been? And so when people say that, you know, that the worst thing you can do is ever say to somebody anything offensive. I mean, People have said this to me, you know, when you, when you say things, you offend people. Compared to Jesus, I'm in kindergarten. Jesus really knew how to say offensive things. In Christianity, the pattern that we see with the prophets and with Jesus, more than any one of the prophets, I think, is this pattern of speaking the truth. That maybe these people need to be shaken. I have had religion professors at Rice University tell me the, mo- the worst thing that you could ever do is ever say something that would offend a student. I'm like, I just walk out of my office and students get offended. Not, they just look at me. No matter what I say, they're going to get offended. And no matter what you say, they will get offended. And when he told me this, I said, you know, I'm offended by what you just said. Because it offends me that you tell me that I'm offending people because I've been commanded by Jesus to speak. So I'm offended. You will never get away from offending people unless you drop dead. Unless you just die. So when you speak the truth, you will offend people. Jesus spoke the truth, but he pronounced upon them a sentence of hell. Something that something that he didn't do to the to the to the prostitutes. He didn't do this to his disciples. I mean, this was really really tough stuff. And you see in here, you know, several things. But let's then look at the next verse. He says, "How are you ever going to escape from this sentence of hell?" And then in verse thirty-seven, he says. I'm sorry, in in, in, uh, verse 33, he says, How will you ever escape the sentence of hell? And then in verse 34, he says, Therefore, I am sending to you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will crucify. Some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. So that the blood so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechah, who you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come on this generation. So look what he says in verse 34. Therefore I am sending to you prophets and wise men and scribes. What do you mean, therefore I am sending Because you were under a sentence of hell, I am sending to you, my precious ones. I am sending to you a witness. It's not just going to stop with me, he says. I'm going to send to you more. More of my precious ones. I'm going to send to you wise men and scribes. And some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues. Look what he says, your synagogues. You know, the the whole pattern of the synagogue is never discussed in the Old Testament. The institution of the synagogue was never mentioned in the Old Testament. They were to have the temple, the temple worship, and they came back, they would come down to the temple to worship. Now, Jesus used the synagogue. So the synagogue was was built up for the convenience of people, people, for meeting places, and they could have these in different locales. Jesus ministered in the synagogues over and over again. The apostles ministered in the synagogues, but it was never an institution that God had proclaimed that there should be in the Old Testament. And He calls them your synagogues. And He discusses in the book of Revelation, He calls them a synagogue of Satan. Because He says, in your synagogue, many things take place that never ought to take place. But He says, you are going to do this, in your synagogue, in your synagogues, you, you scourge them and persecute them from city to city. But look what he says. Upon you is a sentence of hell. Therefore, I am sending to you very good people that I love. You know, Christianity is different than every other religion. Every other religion. People tell me, oh, well, you know, little things, all these these, these, these great religions are, are, are different, but in the major things were the same. And I say it's the complete opposite. In little things were the same, in the major things were totally different. Totally different. For example, in Islam, it says that God has no son, God does not beget. Well, a fundamental basis behind Christianity is his son, his only begotten son. This is fundamental difference where God comes and dies for us. We have one God who has manifest Himself in a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. The other thing that God does is we have a God who is humiliated. It's says Jesus was on the cross bearing the shame, despising the shame that He had to undergo. We have this God of such great humility that this God has borne humiliation. Have you ever been humiliated? You know how much that hurts? I mean, when people say things, and all kids grow up with these wounds where people have said things about us, and we grow up with these wounds, and the beautiful thing about Christianity is we have a God who Himself was humiliated. And he knows the pain of humiliation. And we wrestle within ourselves, and we have so much there. And we see within ourselves that there is indeed wickedness, but the wickedness is because of sin, not by our origin nor our destiny, but because of sin it is there. And he says that you guys are serpents and a brood of vipers, he's saying to these people. How are you ever going to escape from the sentence of hell? Well, because there might be some hope for you, I'm going to send you my precious ones. In fact, I'm going to expend my precious ones on you. The ones that I love the very most, the wise men, the scribes, the apostles, the ones that love me, I'm going to expend them on you. Why would God take His precious ones and send them... Into harm's way, knowing that they would be killed and crucified and scourged and mocked from city to city. Why does he do that? Because he did it with his very own son. Because that's how much he loves people. That is how much he loves people. You know, there was an Orthodox Jew who has written a book, and he's talking about radical Islam. And what hope is there for the world with this radical movement that's rising up? Could there be hope for the world? And you know what he comes to? You know what his solution, this Orthodox Jew, his solution to radical Islam, he says, the only solution to radical Islam, written by an Orthodox Jew, he says, is Christian mission. The only solution to radical Islam is Christian missions. Because the world has seen the power of Christian missions. The world has seen the power of a Mother Teresa going into the heart of India, into a place that no Indians would even go to take care of their very own, and to set up shop there, and to take a vow that she would take, both her and the people who would work with her, They would take a vow of chastity, a a vow of poverty, and a vow of service to the poor. That was their vow. A vow of chastity, a vow of poverty. That they will never, ever take riches for themselves and a vow of service to the poor. What would move a person to do this? Only the man, Jesus Christ, Only the one that has gone before them. This man, Jesus Christ, has done this. He took chastity. He took poverty. He took service to the poor. And because of this, people go and they do this. And this Orthodox Jew sees this and he says, That is the only thing that will break the hardness of men's hearts. And God does this. He takes His precious ones and He sets them as fodder for the hope that the ones that deny Him and curse His name might be freed from the sentence of hell. This is how much He cares. This is how much He cares. You know, I I was at a mission conference about ten years ago. And there was this guy who stood up and he was from... uh, some big Christian mission organization and he, he had his computer there and he had his slides and he was talking about how we have touched every part of this world. If you look over in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, it says, Matthew 24:14, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. And he was giving these computer models and showing all the places where missions had been and missions are. And every part of the world is touched. Well, there was one old man there. And this guy was just amazing. This old man from the Himalayas. He was from India, the Himalaya region. And I had seen him earlier on in this conference because we would break up into small groups, small circles and pray. And one day, the clouds were coming in and it was beginning to drizzle and we broke up into a small group and this old man from the Himalayas, he prayed, Father, it looks like it's beginning to rain. Please spread the clouds so the people at this conference need not get all wet. By the time we got done praying, the clouds opened up And there were no clouds over this campus where the mission conference was. It was just extraordinary. That's the quality of this man. Well, this man gets up and he stands up. After all the computer models had shown that the world was reached. And he stood up. This old man, he says, I don't know about your computers. He says, where I come from. He says, I tell you, I walked into a village. I walked up into a village. And I went to the local shop there. And I went inside and I asked the man, are there any Christians here? And the man said, I don't sell those, but if you go up to the next village up the road, they may sell them there. They have not even heard of Christians. Jesus takes these quality of people with this depth of relationship and sends them into village after village preaching the gospel. This is what He says He will do. This is what our God does. That He Himself was humiliated time and time again in His life. And then, during His death, He takes mocking. And you would think that in His resurrection, He would have done it so gloriously in the eyes of all. No man saw the actual coming out of the tomb. Nobody. Jesus doesn't look for the acclaim of the world. He showed Himself after He rose from the dead. He showed Himself to the ones who loved Him. Why not show Himself to the Pharisees and say, look, I've risen from the dead. How do you like that? Ha! Ta-da! Here I am. No, that's what we would do. The one who bore humiliation didn't even go and show Himself to the Pharisees. But He revealed Himself to the disciples, more than 500 at one time. This God bore humiliation. And this is what He calls you and me to. To bear humiliation for His name. Because He is going to take you if you love Him. And He is going to use you to witness forth to people that hate His name. They hate His very name. He's going to use you in that way. Look what he says in verse 37 of Matthew, chapter 23, verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you are unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you Desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, so He says in, up in verse 34, that I am sending to you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And then in verse 37, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together. Gather your children. That is better than gathering you. If if you want to bless somebody, really bless them, you bless their children. You really want to bless somebody, you bless their children. When people do something for my child, I appreciate it more than if they had done it to me. That's just... The natural thing of being a parent. You bless my child. So when people, you know, when I hear that, you know, people have done something nice to my child, I am so blessed by that. I am so grateful. Jesus said, I wanted to gather your children as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. You see, the only thing that can keep us from the love of God is ourselves. Jesus never goes against our own free will. He doesn't force us. He says, but you were unwilling. Unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you, desolate. You want to see the destruction of a home? Refuse the love of Christ refused to allow him to come in in his principles and in his ways you know i met a young lady um, a few weeks ago uh, um, at a wedding and uh, she said to me oh i'm i'm so-and-so's wife we've never met but i'm so-and-so's wife and i remembered this young man he had been a rice student the first year i had come to rice and he went off To the mission field with crusade for a year and then he'd come back and he lives in dallas now and and he got married and he had sent me an invitation to go to his wedding but i wasn't going to dallas and and uh but you you know i i sent him an email and i you know i didn't even remember till this young lady reminded me she said i'm i'm colby's wife and you sent us an email and it has always stuck with us and i said what was the email and i knew it couldn't have been very long she said you wrote in the email Order your home after the pattern of Jesus, and it will be blessed. Don't, and it won't. That was it. That's what you wrote. She said, that has just resonated with us. That is so true. Those words are true. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. You reject the things of God, and you will see your home crumble away. You order your lives after the pattern of God. You order your relationship out of the, after the pattern of God. You know what happens in marriage? Every time there's this physical union in marriage, it builds up the marriage and makes it stronger. Every time there's a sexual union before marriage, it weakens the marriage that, is, that might ultimately come. Every time. It's like, like say you're given a hundred tokens. And every time... Every time there's a sexual union, before marriage, it's like you lose one of these tokens. And before you know it, you know, know, you're starting out at 80%. And it's really rough. And you say, well, why does this happen? Because God has prescribed a way. And every time you go against it, you lose something. Every time we reject the things of God, we lose something. And Jesus comes in His humility and He holds it out. And He says, you know, I want so much to gather you. As a mother hen gathers her chicks under your wings, but you're unwilling. Jesus extends this enormous love toward us. And are we willing to accept it? And then He says, He says, and you will not see Me. For I say to you, from now on you will not see Me, in verse 39, until you say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. You don't want Jesus in your home, He won't come in. But if you say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. He comes. You welcome Him and He comes. You welcome Jesus and He comes. The Jewish nation was never going to see the face of Jesus again until they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this happens in the book of Revelation after the two prophets rise up from the dead. They will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will welcome him. They will weep for him as an only begotten and they will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and all of Israel, it says, will be saved. But to this day, only individuals are saved out of that among the Jewish people. The nation as a whole will not be saved until, until that event as it's described in the book of Revelation. After three and a half years into, into the tribulation. These very words, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You welcome the Lord in. You know, I hear about marriages, Christian marriages that, that you know, are just having trouble. Men saying harsh things to their wives and wives snapping back and saying, God, God help them. God help them. Let them invite you into their marriage, into their lives. That is the only hope. That is the only hope. And Jesus is there saying, I want to gather you, but I will not force my way in. I will not. You must welcome me in. If you welcome me in, I'm there. You know, let me share with you something, some of the tough questions that I get from students that I think are worth talking about. I'd like to be able to say, you know, just keep quiet about it. You know, one day a, a young lady came up to me and, uh, and she said, how come, how come this cutting off from God is forever? What about all those people out there who have never heard the gospel?" What about them? What about all the people who have never heard? What about the the five year old who dies? He never had a chance to hear. I mean, he died in Saudi Arabia. Never, never had a chance to hear. In fact, if he ever heard anything about a, a Christian, it was in a derogatory way. What about them? What about them? And she started to drift away from the Sunday school class. And then she started to drift away from the faith. And she started having real struggles. And I said to her, you know, there are answers to this. There really are. But I said, what concerns me is you're drifting away. She said, well, I have these questions and they're not being answered. I said, there are answers to this. Maybe not perfect answers, but there are answers. But I wonder about your drifting away. Are you drifting away? Because there's a young man that you like who's not a Christian? Is that why you're drifting away? Is there some guy that you like who's not a Christian that you've been spending a lot of time to talking to? Lo and behold, that's exactly what it was. She was talking a lot to some non-Christian who was convincing her of different things. So, I believe her question is a good and a valid question. But maybe using this as an excuse to drift away from the Lord was wrong. And I know what she's got in store for her. She's got in store for her real pain. And I told her right out, I said, You are going to be one weeping woman. You go with this man and you will weep. I'll give it five years, ten at the very most. You will be married to him and you will be miserable. And you know, I'm not a prophet. I don't think I've ever had a prophecy, but I've just—it's just data points. I mean, it's just just seen this over and over and over again, and it's it's uh, it's just there. And but her question was sincere. Let me let me show you something. Look in in uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 22. Just turn a couple chapters back. Matthew chapter 22. There's this wedding feast, remember, and this king is inviting in the guests and the guests didn't come and so the slaves go out and they invite in others. And then it says in verse 11, Matthew 22 verse 11, But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness, into that place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And her question was a valid question. She said, look, the guy here just didn't, even, didn't have the right wedding clothes on. And he gets thrown into hell? Forever? I mean, that's a good question. You know, because sometimes I'm not always dressed right for the occasion. That's a good question. Is it really forever? And the king calls him friend. What's going on here? He didn't say you, you louse, you dirty pig. He says friend. Look over in, uh, look over in, in Luke chapter sixteen. In Luke chapter sixteen, this is the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Luke chapter 16 verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes. Being in torment, he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between you... Between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You know, and this is true. I mean, people won't necessarily be persuaded, but you know, this is the only parable where Jesus named the name of a person, Lazarus. Only, only parable where he actually gave a name. And many people feel that this This event is not merely a parable, but something that really happened. We don't really know, but he gave a name to it. It's interesting that the man he ended up raising from the dead was Lazarus. But what was the rich man's sin? It says, "Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day." I mean, that's all we see is his sin. I mean, you know, is I mean, how bad is it of sin to enjoy your riches? You know, if you got a lot of money, you want to dress in purple. That's fine. Live in splendor every day. I mean, that's kind of, kind of neat. I mean, it, it's not like the guy was you know going out and torturing children and you know robbing widows. Uh, I don't know, burning down orphanages. I mean, what, what are the despicable things we can think of? He wasn't doing that. He's just joyously living. This is a stream of consciousness. I was just trying to think of mean things that a person might do. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores. So they would lay poor people at the rich people's gate, you know, hoping to get, you know, some crumbs. Longing to be fed with the crumbs falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. I mean, so this guy, Lazarus, was really bad off. I mean, he couldn't even move. He had to be laid there <clears throat> really weak and dogs coming and licking the sores. Now, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And so look at the difference. The poor man dies and carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man's dead and buried. You think that's the end? It's not. Just being dead and buried. People say, you know, when I, when I die, that's it. Not according to the Bible. That's not it. In Hades he lifted up his eyes and being in torment he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, send Lazarus so that he might dip the tip of his finger in cool water and cool off my tongue, for I'm in agony in this flame. So still the rich man wants to be served. And I have that guy serve me. But the guy is crying out for help. I mean, I thought he's in hell. How's he talking to Abraham? How's he seeing Lazarus? There's some, there's some dynamic here. He sees what's going on across this chasm. He sees this. And Abraham doesn't look back and say, look, you stinking rich man. Look, you lousy guy. You, you torturer. You mean, nasty guy. Look what Abraham says. He says, Abraham says, child. Some Bibles translate it, my son. Child. I mean, there's some affection here. You don't go walk up to somebody, Child, if there's no level of affection here, you, know, you don't walk up to to Charles Manson and say, Child, you, know, you don't do this. There was some affection here. And he says, you know, he, he goes in and he starts to have this discourse with him. And he says, there's this great chasm fix. And he says, you know, even if... if Someone from here wants to go. He can't get there. And nowhere, no one from you can get over to here. But there's some dynamic going here. Did you know that it's a more modern thing to not believe in a purgatory? You know, for 1,500 years, there was only the Catholic Church, right? There was no Protestant. So to be an historical Christian is not to be a Protestant. 1500 years, that's all there was with was Catholicism. Did you know that one of the Protestants' greatest heroes of intellectual thought is C.S. Lewis? Everybody, yes, C.S. Lewis. I mean, that guy really knew. I will read all his books over and over again. Near Christianity is How I Got Saved, all these things, great things about C.S. Lewis. Did you know C.S. Lewis believed in purgatory? <gasps> I mean, Protestants certainly don't want that part of C.S. Lewis. I will confess to you, I don't know many things that my brethren take for granted. And it even upsets them when I bring up the subject. I, sh- I-, I shared this with some friends. I said, you know, I started sharing this, this very topic that I was going to talk to you about, of Jesus Christ did a proclamation of hell on these people. And said, so what happens to the poor kid that dies that's never heard about Jesus? Well, with children it's different when they come to an age of awareness. Oh, okay. So when he's 14 years old, or so when he's 12 years old, he's saved. But when he's 12 years old and one nanosecond, he's unsaved. You see what I mean? He came to the age of awareness. Now he's going to hell forever. And before that, oh, welcome, my child. I mean, you see what kind of a fix you get into? What is the age of awareness? I mean, little, little, little kids, one year old, do bad things intentionally all the time. Well, they're forgiven it. Well, what is the age of awareness? I have no idea. It's different for everybody. Well, that helps me a lot. Because there's questions that come up, which are good and valid questions. What happens to the man in the Himalayan village that's never heard of Christ, Christian? Nothing. He's never heard. Does he go to hell forever and ever and ever and ever? People say, well, it says in Romans that God is evident. God is evident everywhere around them. Let's look at that. I mean, this is this is the verse that's always quoted. And that's good. That's fine. And it's an interesting verse. Look in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood throughout what has been made, so that they should be without excuse. Okay. So, the, thing, the invisible attributes... Meaning, as C.S. Lewis says, that doesn't matter what culture you're in, it is not a good thing to run away in battle. Alright? It doesn't matter what culture you're in. You say, well, some cultures say one wife, some cultures have multiple wives. Yes, but no culture says a man should be able to have as many wives as he wants. Any woman that he wants. I mean, there is some fixed number. There is something that is evident. You can look at earth, but the earth does not cry out, Jesus is Lord. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if when we got the first molecular level images of the human genome, of DNA, and we put it on the, on, on the, on the grid in which we were looking, we looked in there down the microscope, and we saw it says, made in heaven. <laughs> Wouldn't it have been neat? But it doesn't. It doesn't. So creation does not cry out, God, Jesus is Lord. Bow before the feet of Jesus. It does not. Yes, there are some invisible attributes. But what happens to the man? These are good and valid questions that people struggle with. And there's a whole group of Christians that say, you know, that the key is the key is those who are seeking versus those who don't seek. Jesus pronounced a sentence of hell on people that repeatedly, repeatedly, denied, denied, denied him, had repeated visitations by prophets, and then were denying him, and still he said, "I'm going to send more people to you." What happens to the poor guy who's just never heard? Or if he's heard, it's only been derogatory things about Christ? I don't know. I don't know. But look here, look in, in, uh, in, in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We had read this portion before where there was a, <clears throat> there was a guy who, who was forgiven this huge debt. And then he went out and he didn't even forgive another guy, you know, like 50 bucks or something. Or $500. And he was forgiven like 50, million, $50 billion or something like that. I mean, a huge debt in Matthew chapter 18. And then look in verse 32, we'll pick it up. Matthew eighteen thirty-two. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that he owed him. You see that? He didn't say he handed him over to the torturers to be tortured forever but until there was repayment made. You know, there's a whole body of believers that believe that, you you know, there's with people like this, maybe there's a way. The C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce, which is just a wonderful book. He talks about how people would come up from this purgatory-like place, this miserable place, and have a chance to look into heaven and a chance to choose heaven, and they normally didn't even choose it because they couldn't believe that anybody would be so good and they'd go back to the... To the miserable place. I don't have an answer for all of this. I don't have an answer. But the answer that I can give is this, and it's in in Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, because Moses struggled with the same, I'm sorry, Abraham struggled with the same question. You know, Abraham, who was a friend of God, didn't have all the answers, he struggled with these same questions. And in Genesis chapter 18, in verse 25, Abraham says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Look at what Abraham did. Abraham said, Lord, it is not like you, it is not like you to slay the righteous with the wicked. It is not like you to treat all alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? This is what gives me great hope that this decision is not mine. I don't have a pat answer for everyone. I really don't. I mean, it's really nice. It's really easy. Really easy to come with the typical evangelical thing. You got Jesus, you're going to heaven forever. No matter how mean you are, no matter how much bad you've done, you accepted Jesus because you came down the aisle when you were 12 years old in your Baptist church, and forever you're okay. You've, You've done all these mean things, but you're okay. You're going to heaven forever. And the other guy who's never heard about Jesus, but is really a pretty good guy. And you'll meet some really nice Muslims. You'll meet some really nice Hindus out there. That'll put a lot of Christians to shame in their kindness, in their generosity, in their graciousness. You say, well, he's going to hell because he doesn't have Jesus. It's very easy to have that evangelical view. Yep, boom. Very simple. I'm not sure that that's scriptural, though. You could never never say this in a normal church service, in a Baptist church, because you get in trouble. But I have this leeway here with you because, you know, we have this great intellectual mind because we're college people. And so we can talk about stuff like this. But these are the questions that come up. I don't have the answer. Abraham didn't have the answer. All he said is, you know, the God of all the earth will deal justly. And that's my hope. God knows who the little kids are that die. God takes care of them. God blesses them. That's up to Him. But if you think you have mercy, just remember, you have no mercy compared to the mercy that God has. To take people who curse His name over and over again and send your precious ones and your Son and all the precious ones you have to witness to them again. Will not God of all the earth deal justly? Let's pray. Father, thank You so much For the truth of the Word of God that just cries out mercy, mercy. And how You want to gather us and to comfort us. And as we say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. As we bless Your name, O God. We receive great blessing in our homes and in our lives. Great blessing. Lord, I thank You. Thank You for Your mercies. And thank You because God of all the earth will deal justly. I pray, Lord, that You touch each heart here and that You draw them closely to Your Son. In the name of Jesus, Amen.